wise man was on a journey through a forest, and he stopped to rest in a clearing to eat his lunch. Sitting down, he pulled a satchel from his back, and he poured the contents on the ground in front of him. He picked up a bundle of cooked rice and vegetables, unwrapped it, and began to eat. A short distance away, in the darkness of the tree line, a thief was hiding. He observed this old man's actions, but what caught his attention was a large precious stone that rolled out of the old man's satchel, catching the sun. This thief was filled with greed, and as he walked around the perimeter of this clearing, he finally reached a spot behind the old man where he felt safe enough to enter, and he stepped into the clearing, slowly walked up behind the old man, reached over his shoulder, grabbed the jewel, and began to run. After about 30 feet, he quickly turned around a glance to see if the old man had given him chase. And what he saw stopped him in his tracks. Still sitting cross-legged, eating his lunch, the old man sat unbothered. The thief was perplexed. He yelled, How come you're not chasing me? Silence. The thief walked a few feet closer and asked again, Why have you not given chase? Silence. To which the thief questioned his own mind. Maybe he was a fool. Maybe he was holding a stone that was really worthless. And finally he moved within five feet of the sitting sage who then looked up with eyes both fierce and kind. And he asked one more time, Why have you not given chase for this? Finally the old man broke the silence. He said, Who bears the weight of this stone? The thief was struck. The answer was not in his Rolodex, unprepared for this logic. I do, he stammered. Then the burden is yours, the old man said. The thief fell to the ground in a heap, directly in front of the old man, reached into his pocket, removed the stolen jewel, placed it directly in front of the old man, and said, Teach me everything you know. This story has some obvious interpretations. I've used it many times to get a room full of people to begin to think outside their own experience to talk about what we value and the surprising things we would give up for truth, for challenge, for change. But I'll never forget on one occasion, I got a different reaction altogether. As I finished the story, I asked the room what they thought this story could be about. And after an awkward silence, someone spoke up and said, the story is a metaphor for my own life, he said. At least that's what it feels like. I've spent my life stealing joy from those who love me. And I began to enjoy the reaction. It was almost like a chase. But then one time after stealing the joy from my partner with my terrible actions, she didn't chase me. Then I went back and I asked if she loved me. And she said, that's just it, I do. But I love myself too. And I deserve more. It's like in the story, the burden was mine. There was no distraction. It was amazing. The room was silent as everyone listened to this guy relate to this story. Now, I thought they were all afraid to speak after his deep answer. But then, a young man in his late 20s named Matt raised his hand. I don't know about anybody else, but I just want to know, how'd this holy man get this precious jewel? How'd this, this sage, this old man, get this stone? Now, I've, just, I've told this story many times, but I've never had somebody ask that question before. Matt was insistent, and his skepticism was contagious, because within minutes, several guys had also bought into the conspiracy of how this old man had come into possession of this precious stone. Ironically, 
they'd come up with this entire backstory that actually made the old man the thief. Now, I had to remind them that it was, in fact, meant to be a teaching parable, not the headline of National Enquirer. It's true, there's no such thing as a bad question, but some questions are better than others. You see, some questions have no interest in seeking hopeful change, but instead can be merely diversions, robbing us of something that might actually be able to help us. This teaching parable normally opens a whole discussion on what we value and what can lead to change in our lives, but on this day, it couldn't be rescued. Because the protagonist, a fictitious bearded sage, was really a lying jewel thief. Nothing surprises me anymore. Sometimes we get hung up asking the wrong questions. Sometimes we ask questions of the universe, of God, like he's on trial. And when the deafening silence is returned, we feel justified in our anger and we continue in our pain. But perhaps there's a way to break this impasse. Because that's not a great place to be. When you're waiting for God to answer your demands, you've dished out your ultimatum and you're waiting for justification. See, a lot of people abandon their faith here or their friendships or their hope on the other side of a question that was left unanswered. Not necessarily because there was no response, but because no response is good enough. In these moments, I think it's important to realize that the difference between a good question and a dishonest question is that one leads to some sort of truth. And the dishonest question, well, it's a distraction. We've all experienced this in an argument, right? We've, had a, we've, we've asked the person we're arguing with a really good question that gets right to the point. And the person we're arguing with, instead of answering our tough question, says something like, Well, before I answer that, answer me this. And the question that they ask has nothing to do with anything. It's a distraction because your question hits too close to home. Ironically, their question is your answer. You see, this is hard to fathom in a culture that worships information. We have this these cell phones in our pockets that can answer any question we have. We don't ever have to wonder what song this is or what movie that actress was in or how many cups and eight tablespoons. We just nearly have to ask Siri or Google it. But we've been deceived. Answers can be dead ends. Consider the ancient Jewish distinctive. Rabbinic tradition celebrates the ability to answer a question with a question. Now, some would say, I can understand responding to a question with a question, but how do you answer a question with a question? Ray Vanderland tells this story of an American tourist who entered a a Jewish antiquity shop run by a retired rabbi. She was in a hurry and needed to get back on the bus into the airport. And so she asked the shopkeeper, you have so many beautiful things in the shop. I'm in a hurry. So uh, which one is your favorite. Now, being a rabbi, the question begs a question. Are you married? He asked. Now, the woman was a little indignant. In a hurry, this was none of his business. And so she said, no. Why are you asking? Well, what she'd done is she asked another question. If she had just said, no, I'm not, the conversation would have been over. But instead, she asked, 
Yes, I am. Why? And this question pulled this rabbi out of retirement with his next. Do you have any children? Once again, the woman was indignant, bothered by his irrelevant questions, and in a hurry, she snapped back, Yes, I do. What does it matter? To which the rabbi asked her, Which is your favorite? You see how a question can answer? And sometimes it can do a better job? There is some wisdom here that has been lost in a modern world that isn't satisfied unless we have an answer. And answer that we are happy with. But an answer sometimes merely ends an inquiry. It doesn't actually boost one on their way, on their journey. In the wisdom traditions, holy teachers knew this. Why end someone's journey for truth with an answer? Instead, they would offer them a question, another question, to point them in a direction of movement and growth so they can discover something themselves. Just strolling through the Gospels, you will find at least 29 instances where Jesus was asked a question, and his response was a question. Here's a quick example. In Mark chapter 12, verse 14, the religious leaders had come to Jesus and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Wow. They're clearly buttering him up. Right? This is a setup. And then they said, Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we pay? Simple question, Jesus. Of course, they've asked the question after they've buttered him up. It's a trap. It's a complete trap. You see, if Jesus answers yes, it is uh, important for us to pay our taxes to Caesar. He will offend the Jewish struggle for autonomy. The Jewish people are under Roman oppression and are overtaxed and burdened. And Jesus is being tested to see where he stands. This is a loyalty test. But if he answers no, it could be an act of treason against Rome. And that could lead him into trouble. But isn't it just a yes or no question? Is it? Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius, the coin. Let me look at it. And when they brought him the coin, he looked at it. He asked them, whose portrait is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they reply. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And they were amazed. It wasn't black and white, but it was clear. He answered their questions with three of his own. Even Jesus' parables were stories with deeper meanings. And that left the listener with more questions than answers. They were provocative, meant to cause you to question your own understanding, meant to push you on a little bit farther, a little bit deeper. Now I'm learning from Jesus. I have some questions for him. I'm sure you do too. Knowing what I observe, his response would most likely be another question. And that actually helps me this morning. And I want it to help you too. Sometimes I want God to answer all my questions, and I wish he had an email or I could just text him. But what happens when no answer will do? When no answer is good enough to explain or justify what you're going through? What happens when my questions actually aren't interested in answers? 
but maybe deflecting blame for my own suffering or failures. You see, in those cases, often it doesn't matter what excuse God might give me. My mind is already made up. I'm just trying to find a way to convince him that it's his fault, not mine. You see, in those moments, I'm stuck behind a question that isn't interested in truth, but only satisfaction. Because the only way forward is for me to find a better question, one that brings movement. Consider my friend uh, who I had coffee with a little while ago. He um, was asking me a, a question as a young father about his children who were asking some really hard questions about what God is like. He tried the old, you know, go ask your mother, but she said, go ask your father. And sometimes when a child asks a question, an answer is the worst thing we can give them. It might stop inquiry, which the ancients learned is detrimental to growth. It's like when my older brother asked me if I wanted him to teach me to drive. He should have said, do you want me to teach you the way I drive? (laughs) That would have been a little more honest question. You see, when your child asks what God is like, you are giving them your personal perspective, what you've come to know, which isn't bad, especially if you clarify it that way. But they might not experience God the same way as you. And they may question when it seems different. And so what's a parent to do? Well, what about asking them another question? One that creates movement. So when they come to you and say, what do you think God is like? What if you ask them, what do you think God is like? And if they say, I mean, bully, ask why they think that way. But never run the mistake of thinking that we can give an answer that can completely satisfy ever. Finally, consider Marcus, someone I met a couple of years ago. He was angry and he didn't try to hide who he was angry at. When we first met, he knew I was a minister and he skipped the usual introductions and said, let me get straight to the point. Why would God allow my little brother to die? Wow. That question had a story behind it. And Marcus deserved to tell me that story. Before anyone tries to offer him an answer, they need to hear his journey. I could see that this question had caused him a lot of pain. And I mentioned that it was a good question and that I would like to answer similar questions in in my own life. But I said, Marcus, you deserve to tell me that story. So tell me. So he told me the tragic story of his younger brother dying in a car accident, leaving a young widow and a child without a father. The story was aggravated even more because his younger brother was such a hardworking young man, building a beautiful life, a beautiful family. His father was just so proud of his brother, whereas Marcus had a wasted life. His job was done. His marriage was almost over. Addiction had taken so much. Believing his brother's life was worth more than his own, he was just living in aggravated pain. But if he was like me, could there be any answer good enough to justify and satisfy his pain? It turns out Marcus is just like me. But he was stuck on the wrong end of an unanswerable question. You see, some questions can't lead to answers because there's no answer good enough. And they bounce off the heavens like a bird off a window. We can find ourselves shouting to the universe, shaking our fist at God, only to find the silence deafening. 
and we are guilty of asking things that require an answer that can only sound like one thing. So when we don't hear the thing we're searching for, we hear nothing. So I asked Marcus if I could arrange a meeting with him and God for five minutes, where he could sit across the desk from the divine, and Marcus could ask one question that God had to answer. I asked him if he knew what the question would be. He immediately answered, yes. Why did you let my brother die? I looked at him and said, Marcus, that is a good question. But I asked him, what answer would God have to give to justify the pain? What answer would be good enough to make up for the loss, the tragedy? And Marcus said, there is no answer good enough. I said, you're right, Marcus. So do you see? You're stuck. What do you mean, he asked. I said, you're asking a question that you've already admitted there's no answer to. So you're deadlocked. We sat there looking at each other till the silence got awkward. I think he was waiting for me to say something profound. I had nothing. So what do I need to do, he asked, realizing that he was at an impasse, that he was stuck. What if in those moments we tried asking a different question, I said to him. Is it possible that there could be a better question, one that maybe we ourselves can answer? What if instead of asking God why, I said, what if we asked God what good can come from my brother's tragedy? You see, the second question was one that only Marcus could answer. I think it's the one the universe is asking you, the one that God is asking. I listened to Marcus tell me how his closet addiction came to a head as he tried to deal with the grief. He lost his job. His marriage was almost done. He'd hit rock bottom, missing his brother's funeral because he was on a bender. The family found him, and they, they told him that they already lost one son. They didn't need to lose another, and they took him to treatment. And so here, five days into a nine-week treatment program for addiction, I'm looking into his eyes, and I'm saying, is it a good thing that you're here? He didn't answer. I asked again, is it possible that your brother's passing may lead to your sobriety? Again, he didn't answer. He didn't need to, because the question was becoming the answer. The potential existed that this tragedy has changed everything. So I, I encouraged him to let his brother move him forward and not let his passing hold him back. I said, there's enough death already. It is absolutely true that his brother can never be replaced. But in a strange way, his death could bring life to those left behind. This strange transaction brings value to something that seems like an utter waste. There's a word for that. We call it redemption. I look at Marcus and I said, Marcus, you are the good that can come from this tragedy. You can stand at your brother's grave and say you're sober because of, of, of his loss. And it doesn't take the pain away, but it adds a little something else to it, something that even in a small way diminishes the loss and doesn't exacerbate it. Something that actually helps you hold it differently. Sometimes questions can become impenetrable barriers instead of doorways. And while it's true that there's no such thing as a bad question, it's also true that some questions are better than others. Some questions are dead ends, and some are avenues to a whole new way of seeing and living. So if you find yourself stuck, 
behind a wall that is unanswerable. When you find yourself asking why me, perhaps just consider changing the question to why not me. When you find yourself demanding answers for the unfair way you're seeing circumstances unfold in your life or around the world, consider that there may be no answer that would satisfy anyways. Perhaps a different question might help, a better question. Not necessarily a more satisfying one, but one that leads to movement. And by creating movement, we have the potential to bring meaning to things that can otherwise seem meaningless. And this is one of the greatest secrets to a life of faith. Why history is riddled with the faithful enduring great suffering and not being demoralized behind a question that has no answer. So what questions are you stuck behind? Whether for God, for a friend, or yourself. And what's a better question that could lead to movement? And do you need help finding that better question? Are you stuck? What we're looking for is something that moves us towards God, not away, and in a small way, redeems what's behind us. <laughs>